Times of Restoration Written by Orville Swindoll Read by Jeffrey Swindoll Chapter 2 Fire on a Dry Prairie He himself will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Matthew 3, 11. The house was perhaps 40 or 50 years old, two-story and stately. Since the Darlings had purchased the place several years earlier, they had done a lot of refurbishing and restoring and had it looking quite nice. The large front door opened onto the entrance hall with a small library on the right. Next to that was the staircase leading to the bedrooms upstairs, then a small utility bathroom, and afterwards the kitchen. On the left side of the hall was a large living room, which opened through two glass-paneled doors into the dining room. Beyond that was the gallery, a sort of indoor patio, which was really a continuation of the entrance hall at about the level of the kitchen. This patio had not long since been closed in with glass and aluminum frames, leaving a nice view of the small backyard, dressed in luxuriant shrubs and flowering plants. Alberto and Alicia Darling were the parents of four growing and active boys. At 40, he was an executive in the marketing department of the Coca-Cola Export Corporation, of which he was later to become manager in the Argentine area. Alberto was one of the four sons of an Irish man, Nigel Darling. His father came to Argentina when the British ran the railroads. As a youth, Alberto caught his father's zeal for the gospel and had since become one of the more capable and sought-after lay preachers among the Plymouth Brethren. For years, his father had been an elder in a prominent Brethren assembly whose hall was located on Donato Street. Alberto himself was one of the four elders who were leading a group in the northern suburban area of Don Torquato. This had originally begun as an evangelistic outreach from the Donato group, and, like many other such groups growing in typical Brethren manner, it had since become a full-fledged assembly, conducting their own baptisms and the regular Sunday celebrations of the Lord's Table. In spite of his success and prosperity, Alberto was nonetheless dissatisfied with himself and with his church. Too often, it seemed to him, things moved along in a rather humdrum way, without any real evidence of the Lord's hand in it all. Worse still, he knew in his own heart that he was not the man, nor the husband, nor the father, nor the employee he should be. Still, he held out a hope for release and had recently become more diligent in prayer. Once, when a friend was visiting him, he left with him a copy of Larry Christensen's little pamphlet, Speaking in Tongues, a gift for the body of Christ. This same friend shared with him his own recent experience of the Holy Spirit's fullness. The following day, in his downtown office, after reading the booklet, he became so overwhelmed with the sense of God's presence and power that he had to quickly retire to the small bathroom in the hall. There he surrendered completely to God, and soon he was praying in a torrent of unknown sounds and rejoicing in the Lord's presence. He knew that release had come, and that he had touched something so tremendous it had the power to transform all things. Suddenly it dawned on him that he was still on the earth, and precisely in the office bathroom. As he hurriedly returned to his office, he had the strange sensation that if anyone should speak to him, he would surely answer in some unknown tongue. In the weeks that followed, he became aware of a growing number of Christians whose hunger for God and for spiritual vitality had led them to the same sort of discovery, and he was avidly devouring everything he could find in print 
that might throw further light on this new scene. As he learned, he shared with others. Prayer Meetings Overflow By March of 1967, a group of 20 or 25 decided to start meeting for prayer on Monday evenings. Alberto immediately offered his home, located in one of the nicer residential areas of Buenos Aires. It was also large enough to accommodate a pretty large crowd, but then they could hardly have imagined what would happen in the course of the next few months. Many have said that the fastest means of communication in Latin America is gossip. Anything novel, juicy, or scandalous has no need of the press, TV, or radio. The surest way to get a bit of news moving is to get it into the whispering circuit. The thrill of knowing something secret or exclusive is too great to keep it to oneself. So without handbills or bulletins or church announcements, word got around that some Christians, praying in the Darling Home for revival, were being filled with the Holy Spirit. It was almost like striking a match to a dry prairie. Every week the number grew. Things would usually get underway as a typical church prayer meeting. People would begin arriving between 8 and 8.30 p.m., take a seat, lower the head, and pray silently. Once a fairly stable nucleus had arrived, someone would spontaneously raise his voice in prayer. This would be followed by another, and then another. But the prayers were different from those heard on Sundays in the church halls. Here, the saints were confessing their need, crying out for revival, asking to be filled with the Holy Spirit. They were emboldened to ask, since it was obvious the Lord was meeting others and answering their prayers. The chorus of amens indicated when a common chord or feeling had been touched. There would also be an occasional chorus or well-known hymn that expressed the same sentiment as the prayers. There was a feeling that one could really open up his heart and express his deepest longings without fearing that he would soon be the subject of dressing down by one of the elders. I think it was this sense of liberty in prayer coupled with the expectation that God would really hear and do what we asked. That kept folk coming in increasing numbers and from ever greater distances. Many regularly traveled an hour and a half to two hours each way just to be in these prayer meetings where the mercy of God was revealed and his throne could be touched. Usually the meeting would draw to some kind of finish about 11 p.m. Those who had to travel great distances would then slip out, along with others whose curiosity had been satisfied. Invariably, though, a number would stay on chatting or sharing a problem or asking counsel of one or more of the pastors and elders that were coming and showing sincere sympathy with what was happening here. Quite frequently, there were those who specifically asked for prayer and the laying on of hands to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Whenever there was such interest, we usually closed off the living room exclusively for prayer, asking that the others converse in the hall. So it was that, week after week. Hungry folk were going away after midnight, filled and overflowing, drunk on this new and heady wine they had begun to drink. Naturally, the comments and the exaggeration spread. Word got around that our prayer meetings were conducted with the lights out, and that the laying on of hands was rather unseemly at times. The rising crescendos of praise and rejoicing made us sound to some like a drunken lot. Others gossiped that the police had closed us down at times, or that there were wild threatening prophecies. This caused various church leaders to come or send others to spy us out. Still, the joy and expectation rose steadily. By the end of the year and on into 1968, every Monday night saw the crowds overflowing in the living room into the dining room, with folding chairs filling the entrance hall and the back patio. Young people were seated on the stairway all the way to the top, and people were standing in the kitchen, the library, 
on the front porch and in the backyard. Who are we? By this time, two or three things had made marked changes in the meetings begun earlier in the year. First, the majority had now been filled with the Holy Spirit and thus constituted a stable group of varying denominational backgrounds that was discovering a new and dynamic identity in these Monday gatherings. There were, besides the majority group of Plymouth Brethren, also believers from the Baptists, Mennonites, Christian and Missionary Alliance, Evangelical Union of South America, and a few independents. But something had happened that brought them to share a common, vital, happy experience. Secondly, the general tone of the meeting had changed. The earlier cries of need and confessions of drought had given way to shouts of joy, testimonies of victory, or answered prayer and exhortations of faith. Worship had become the lifestyle of the meetings, and we were all adoring the Lord. Love was the outstanding hallmark, while the rising tide of faith was causing us all to expect the Lord to do tremendous things. Finally, some ten or so pastors and elders that had become regular participants and supporters of the meeting had begun moving more closely together. They seemed to be emerging as the recognized and stable leaders of this new movement of spiritual renewal they shared together in the ministry of the Word, which had now become a standard part of the meeting, providing direction and orientation for this growing group of people who were finding a common identity. Sometimes, when the group of pastors met, they asked themselves such questions as, Who are we? What are we to become? What is our pastoral responsibility towards these believers? Until the Lord showed us clearly what we were to do, we were either guessing or surmising on the basis of previous experience or knowledge. Yet, we weren't kept guessing.